I don't know how many of you have this experience, but I have it in the mornings when you turn on the computer or turn on your phone and the email comes in and they roll past and it's the mailings that you get from different organizations or from friends and so on, the articles that they've sent you or you know, the agenda that's happening or events and things like that. It's, you know, we've got breaking defense and breaking energy and defense one and the various institutes that send you. Uh, and But there's always one or two that when they show up on the email, you go to directly. And you go and sort of find out what it is they're talking about, what it is they're saying. Well, that is almost always my experience when, when an email from Gal Luft turns up. Um, an email from the Institute for Analysis of Global Security, um, which, he has, uh, which he runs here in Washington, D.C., uh, because Gall's comments on energy and energy policy, energy and national security and global security issues are always have a great combination of originality, of close attention to detail, but also at the same time a kind of new look at the bigger picture, which really helps to illuminate and helps to understand what trends are taking place in the energy sector or in the geopolitical sector and what their impact is going to be on on, on energy and on energy policy, both in this country and also uh, other, uh, in other countries. Uh, Gall is, as I mentioned, co-director of the Institute for Analysis of Global Security, which is primarily focused on energy security issues. He's a senior advisor to the United States Energy Security Council, which is America's highest extra-governmental energy advisory committee, and there's some members of the of the council here today. Um, he's published articles, well, in a variety of places, uh, Commentary, The American Interest, uh, Middle East Quarterly, Los Angeles Times, Washington Post. He's testified in front of the Foreign Relations Committee, the Senate, the, the House International Relations, House Science, and the U.S. China and Economic Security Review Commission. Um, China is of particular interest to Gaul these days, and when I was organizing this conference, conference, I wanted to make sure that I was going to have Gaul here as a member, uh, as a participant, but that took some doing in terms of scheduling because Gaul now spends a good deal of his time, almost half of his time in China, uh, discussing and observing and analyzing energy policy and new trends that are taking place there. He's also, at the same time, uh, instrumental in organizing the annual global forum on energy security take, that takes place in Beijing. Uh, it's one of the uh, few meeting places where people and analysts on energy from a variety of countries, but primarily the United States and China, can get together, talk about common ground, common issues, uh, new approaches, as well as revising old approaches on key energy aspects uh, and key energy uh, directions for the future, as well as for the, as well as for the present. Um, Gall is a doctorate in strategic studies from SICE, Johns Hopkins University, just down the street here in Washington, D.C. Um, and so he brings a combination of both academic acumen, uh, close analysis of key trends that are taking place, particularly in U.S. and Japan, but also, as I think you will find out, as you will discover at the same time, he is also a very eloquent spokesman for key aspects of th thinking about these issues, for pointing us in new kinds of directions and making us thinking about old issues in new ways. And one of the aspects of the global form of energy security is to pursue precisely that kind of agenda, which is why I've asked him to come and talk to us during lunchtime about the Global Forum, about the kind of work that he has been seeing it doing over the past couple of years, and how it fits into a larger global energy picture, both for the U.S. but also for China as well. So could you please join me in giving a warm welcome to Gal Luft. Thank you, Arthur. Um, glad you survived the meeting until now. It's, uh, it's uh, always good to talk after lunch, and you <laughs> don't feel that you're in the way. Um, I uh, 
I think the topic of our day is, is very uh, important uh, because of something that I think Yossi Hollander alluded to early in the morning uh, when he talked about the economic growth of the world and the need for growth. Uh, if you look at the contribution to global growth uh, currently, who contributes to growth today in the world? You see something very interesting. United States and China together contribute 50% of the world's growth. All the rest of the world together are the 50%. So if something happens to the United States or China, get derailed or something wrong happens or to both, and certainly if there is tension between the two, there goes your global, global growth, and there goes your global economy. Now, the flip side of it is that if the two countries uh, find areas in which they can cooperate synergetically in a way that increases uh, the growth of both countries, the multipliers are enormous. You can create just by some program that generates... Uh, 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 X amount of uh, dollars in, in, in GDP of, to both sides, you can create another Germany, just like that, in terms of contribution to global growth. So the opportunity is amazing. The downside is that it's not really happening. The thesis of my talk is that the problem in the bilateral relations is that uh, perhaps the biggest missed opportunity why? Because the two countries um, are uh, insisting to cooperate on areas that are not in their best interest necessarily, while neglecting those areas which are in their best interest. So cooperation is good, but it has to be in the right areas that serve both countries' interests. So uh, let's look at, when it comes to energy, where are the two countries cooperating? Uh, the best way to find the answer is to look at the prime vehicle for uh, bilateral exchange, which is uh, uh, something called the U.S.-China uh, Strategic and Economic Dialogue, which is a, a ministerial-level meeting that happens once a year. Uh, the most recent one took place in June. And in this meeting, the two countries convene at a ministerial level to discuss the areas of cooperation. Um, so this year, uh, there were 127 initiatives um, on every area that you can think about, from uh, maritime security to terrorism to border control. To, uh, so out of this 127 um, initiatives, 43 initiatives that's one-third of the initiatives had to do with energy and environment, which tells you that energy and the environment plays a very important role in the bilateral relations, which is good. One reason is because that's an area that is not as thorny. So you can do a lot together without getting into the real thorny issues in the relationship, like cybersecurity, like South China Sea, like other areas that the two sides don't really feel comfortable together. But when we pair it a little bit uh, deeper, we see when we go through those 43 initiatives and working groups, we see that most of them are in the field of climate change. So... Now the question is, is this really the right focus? Now I would argue that probably not. Uh, you saw uh, something caught my attention when uh, Damian showed his uh, slide uh, showing what do Chinese care about? And the number one was corruption, number two was pollution. I don't remember what, but I don't know if you pay, paid attention. I, I did not see climate change anywhere there. It was not one of the 10 or 15 issues that Chinese care about. Now, uh, only two weeks ago, the Pew uh, organization issued a report, which was very interesting because it showed 
that uh, contrary to um, the rest of the developed world, where concern about climate change uh, stands at around 54% on average in people when they're polled, in China it's 18%. Uh, so China, the Chinese people, and by extension the Chinese government, despite of all the statements and the uh, goals and the things that our uh, Chinese leaders tend to flag, uh, the Chinese people are not there. But we saw on the list that was shown before that pollution is number two. What do we make of it? We make of it that Chinese care very deeply about pollution. They don't care about climate change. They don't think climate change is something that affects them. This is an issue that needs to be distilled here. Why? Because it draws a line between the type of emissions that actually kill you, that actually make you sick, like SOX, NOx, PM2.5, mercury, all the things that go into the air and make you ill, and the greenhouse gas emissions, which may, may or may not, depending on your view, make the planet unstable, but they don't have uh, impact on human health. This is a very important line to draw because that relates to the choices and the policies uh, that are uh, floating. And I think that um, to the degree that we can find uh, initiatives that serve both, that can reduce the harmful emissions and the greenhouse gas emissions, the Chinese would more than love to participate. But I could not say the same about things that only address the greenhouse gas emission side of the equation. Okay, so, so this is a nuance that is not very well understood in the West because we have been inculcated to see carbon as a pollutant. I mean, even the president says carbon pollution, okay? But in China and in many other developing countries, carbon emissions are not considered to be harmful pollutant. Uh, so the, the uh, other point I would make here with regards to pollution is that we need to be very careful not to over emphasize this issue in the sense that we are um, slaughtering the, the, the goose that lays the golden eggs on which we all thrive. Yes, there are very bad days in Beijing and in other big cities. Yes, this picture that was shown here is, is real. I've seen this. But I can tell you that that's not the situation that happens every day. Most days of the year are not like this. In fact, the national average for bad haze pollution, 20 in a very bad year, 30 days a year. Okay? Now, the question is, what is it that we are getting in return for this inconvenience of enduring 20 or 30 days of haze pollution a year? We cannot ignore this side of the equation. We cannot forget what is it we are getting in exchange for this uh, hardship? We hear a lot, even in the presentation before, we heard about the premature death that are occurring due to pollution. What does premature mean? Premature to what? When the Chinese Communist Party took power in 1949, the life expectancy in China was 36 years. Today, it's 75 years. Okay? So the Chinese got 40 extra years of life. Think what you can do in 40 years of life. So when you come to the Chinese and talk to them about pollution, you have to also present the trade-off. Yes, you have to endure 20 days of haze pollution a year but you've got another 40 years to live, and your GDP has 
skyrocketed in comparison to where it used to be. So we cannot ignore the benefits of cheap energy and, and plentiful energy. And you know what's the best way to look at it? Take, it, for example, India, a country that of about similar size of population. The life expectancy in India is about 10 years less than in China. Okay? The main reason that the life expectancy is so low is because most of China, most of India, or you know, about 400 million people in India still live in a state of energy poverty. They don't have energy at all. And that lack of energy is the, probably the 10 years difference in life expectancy. So we need to have a much more balanced conversation about this, not only to show the loss of life and the years that you could, uh, the, the five years or the 4,000 premature death that you have here and there. You also have to look, if you want to be decent, if you want to be honest with yourself, you have to look at the entire picture. What is the contribution to wealth? to prosperity? What is the, uh, how many babies that otherwise would have been, not been born or aborted or, or how many women would have been dead on their way to a delivery room and are alive today and caring and raising children because they have access to clean water and clean energy and, 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 and energy. Maybe not the cleanest, but energy. Now, why am I saying that this is a key issue in the relation? The Chinese understand that the problem that they're facing is a problem of unsustainable growth, let me call it, because I think the two key issues in the Chinese mindset is Growth and sustainable. Growth needs to be sustainable. And the question is to how to balance the growth and, and sustainability. Now, a year ago, something very unusual happened in China. Um, the government published something called a, a strategic energy plan, which, why is it unusual? Because normally in China, uh, energy plan is floated every five years as part of the five-year plan. So the next five-year plan needs to be submitted, I think, by September of next, of next year, 2016. But all of a sudden, last year, there was an energy plan. What happened? Why, why, why not wait? Why do you have to all of a sudden do an emergency plan? Well, there are many reasons to this. Some of them have to do with uh, internal politics. Some of them have to do with uh, public pressure that was uh, pressing the, 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 the leadership. But the point is that uh, this plan is very interesting because it has two major thrusts or ma major trajectories. One was mentioned before, capping, capping the use of energy. In other words, putting a cap on the use of energy uh, uh, at 4.8 billion tons of coal equivalent. Okay, energy. Now, I'm not going to go into the question how doable it is because as we concluded before in the comments, there are issues of statistics and how reliable they are. But there are other considerations because at the same breath, at the same time that the Chinese put this cap, they also said that they want to reduce the dependence on foreign, uh, on imports, on energy imports, to reduce it to 15%. In other words, to have 85% of the primary energy domestic. Now, you cannot have both ways. You cannot accomplish both goals without going into the big question of coal. Because China doesn't have enough oil to sustain itself. China doesn't have natural gas to sustain itself. China doesn't have, um, it may have the ability to increase renewables, as it, and it will, but uh, renewable energy is mostly not baseload power, uh, and therefore that has, to be, that has to come 
in conjunction to major upgrades to the grid and storage and other difficult things. So you're left with coal. And I think coal is the biggest elephant in the room here. And this is, to me, the biggest miss in the relations between the United States and China. And let me explain why. Because the two countries are the two major uh, reserve holders of coal. I mean, China, Russia, and, and the United States are the big Saudi Arabias of, of coal. Uh, China, of course, the biggest consumer of, oil, of coal. Um, the coal is the workhorse, not only of the Chinese economy, but even to some extent, still, the US economy. I mean, still, it's the number one uh, commodity used for power generation, even with the low natural gas that we have now. So we still uh, have a great dependence on coal, but at the same time, uh, the administration, the Obama administration, uh, is in the midst of a very fierce war against coal. Um, you cannot really build a coal fire plant, uh, fire, uh, plant in, in the United States, but that's okay, we have very cheap natural gas. Mm -hmm. But the problem is that the Obama administration is trying to extend its war on coal also to the developing world. For example, by denying uh, grants and, and financing through the financial institutions that the United States um, has um, great influence on, like the World Bank and, the, and others, where we're Asia Development Bank, etc. So they're putting limits on the ability to finance coal. Uh, and I think in a country like China, where they're, they're permitting just last year, I mean, yeah, I mean the past year, uh, they permitted 155 uh, coal plants in one year, at three a week. And when you look at the conditions for financing, uh, you basically can only get the money if, you, if your coal plant is, um, has uh, measures to capture and sequester the carbon, which is something that technology is not really commercial at the moment. Maybe one day, but today it's not really economic to, to do it. So it's effectively you're saying that you cannot uh, get financing for, for a coal plant. And, and even um, I read a couple of weeks ago that the United States and Japan uh, agreed to take this ban on financing coal plants to, to the um, uh, next meeting of the OECD to get all the OECD countries to, to join this initiative, which is one of the reasons that the Chinese have decided to um, launch their own financial institutions that can provide money, uh, financing to, to, to uh, create uh, energy producing facilities that don't have the same environmental or certain uh, the, the, the greenhouse gas emission controls. And that's one of the reasons for the establishment of the AIB, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. Okay? Um, and that's, I believe, one of the reasons that the United States also opposed um, to the last minute to the AIB, uh, despite the fact that all of its allies uh, supported this and even joined as founding members. So um, I think that, that uh, the issue of coal really needs to be revised here uh, because you know, we can all have our um, grand designs and wishful thinking, but I want to share with you uh, one or two lines from a report that was issued by the, the China Energy Fund Committee on, on, on coal uh, just last year, which basically says that given China's energy endowment and socioeconomic paradigm, coal can hardly be replaced or displaced as an important energy component in China, and this will not change, at least in the near future. This is the reality. So instead of make believe that somehow we can get rid of coal, uh, we need to find ways to get the two countries to move into uh, not the question of call yes or no, but call how. 
how can we use coal in the best way and how can we contribute to each other's effort and share the technology uh, to have uh, a better uh, utilization of coal. Um, and that, I think, is, is, is largely missing because, again, the administration is dead set to fight coal altogether. Now, this is not only about China because China is also... Uh, um, you know, you have China, but then you have another region that is next to China, which is the Southeast Asian countries, ASEAN. Now, ASEAN, if you think about it, if it was one country, now it's 10 countries, but if it was one, one country, it would be the third most populated country in the world. 600 million people right there. Okay? And in those countries, in this region, 75% of the approved, the new approved, um, generation capacity is coal. 25% is all the rest. So, this is my, and, and these are all, by the way, except for Singapore, all of those countries are developing countries. Countries with still a lot of energy poverty, with still, uh, uh, they still need to, to uh, grow their economies substantially, and they're going to use every lump of coal they can because that's the cheapest form of energy. And really, we need to think about the moral uh, imperative of denying the cheapest form of energy from the poorest people in the world. And I leave it at that. But I think we need to take a pause and ask ourselves if this is a moral thing to do for the United States to pursue this kind of policy um, in a way that is perceived by the developing world as a new form of environmental imperialism uh, uh, this is the word that is being used in private conversations, not only in China, but also in other parts of the world, uh, this region. And if we are to talk about morality, I think we have also need to ask ourselves another question. Uh, David Sandelow is here. Remember when you were in the government, um, one of the things we did together was to address the issue of rare earth minerals, and that was an extension to that. We looked at uh, our dependency on uh, imported uh, minerals, um, and we learned that the United States is dependent on imported minerals. Uh, I think there are about 20 minerals that we are 100% dependent, and then of 40 that we are 50% and up. So we are heavily, heavily dependent on imported minerals, and we expect the other countries, China included, because we even went to the World Trade Organization and filed a claim against them for revising their export quotas. That created a lot of noise in Washington. And we got really angry that they revised down their exports of, of rare earth. Well, a few years later, we have a situation in which we have finally something we can share with the rest of the world, and that is crude oil. We have a little bit of crude oil that, that we can spare now, but we don't want to because we have a ban. Okay, so we expect the rest of the world to export its goodness to us. And we get very angry when they don't. But when it comes to us sharing our excess and surpluses with the rest of the world, oh no can do that. Now, I want you to think how this is being perceived abroad. Forget about Washington and all the political gimmicks that uh, we hear about here. How does it look from the outside? What does it tell outsiders about Washington? What does it tell that we still have a policy in which you need to get a special permit from the DOE to export LNG, if the country is a country you don't have a free trade agreement with. So we need to also look how is it that we are being viewed in this type of relationship. I think that um, we also need to stop looking at China or making China believe that it is uh, public enemy number one in terms of climate. And it's the, yes, it is 
the biggest emitter, no doubt about that. It is, okay? But it's also the biggest country in terms of population, and it's also in the development stage where it is still using uh, high energy intensity in its uh, economy. But we also need to acknowledge what China has done uh, in uh, the process of uh, reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And I want to tell you something uh, that most people don't know. So about a year ago, The Economist uh, ran a, um, a survey of the various government policies that contributed the most to the reduction of greenhouse gas emissions. Look at various policies that government around the world adopted and how much greenhouse gas emissions were spared as a result. The three top policies, okay, were the adoption of hydroelectric power, the adoption of nuclear power, and one-child policy, okay? On all three, China was uh, the main contributor to those three policies. Uh, China built 47,000 uh, hydroelectric dams. China is the only country, more or less, in the world where nuclear buildup is, uh, nuclear reactors are being built, and they're now building dozens of them. Uh, so, uh, and, and while one-child policy, I, I, I don't want to get into this because I don't want this to be construed as if I support. But the point is, the hydroelectric program of China alone contributed 10 times more what the renewable policy of the EU and the American CAFE standards contribute together. Ten times more than the two of them together. What I'm trying to say is that China has done its share in reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Don't pretend that China is the problem when China, and it could be demonstrated very easily, has done more than any other country, considering its developmental stage, has done more than any other country in the world, certainly more than the United States, and certainly more than Germany, <laughs> uh, to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Now, let me talk about another issue, um, and I think Yossi mentioned it before too, and that is oil. My position on oil is that uh, this is uh, where the opportunity lies. I'm not going to talk much about it because we have a panel dedicated to this later, but I think that oil is, uh, and transportation is a major area where the two countries can do a lot together uh, for the one reason, that China and the United States are producers of um, 40% of the world's vehicles, okay? 40% of the world's vehicles are made in China and the United States collectively. When you control 40% of the manufacturing of anything, if you work together, you can define the way that vehicles are manufactured. It's a huge opportunity here. And since I said before, I don't think that reduction of coal use is in the best interest of the two countries, but certainly on the oil front, there is a commonality of objective. And therefore, I think that the focus should be on vehicle manufacturing practices. Even the American manufacturers, GM, Ford, they make most of their money in China, not in the United States. So they're very, very attuned to where the Chinese market is headed. And if the Chinese use methanol or whatever, they will make the car to run on methanol or whatever. <laughs> now the paradox is with natural gas. With natural gas, you have today a paradox. The price of natural gas 
in China is about four times more than it is in the United States today. But they have 10 times more natural gas vehicles as we do. And they have five times uh, more uh, uh, refueling facilities. Why is it? Why is it that we have natural gas that is so much cheaper in China, but they are so far ahead of us when it comes to the deployment of natural gas vehicles? Well, that's a question that we need to answer here. But uh, certainly uh, on methanol, and by the way, uh, uh, this is a report that uh, we just uh, published um, with uh, the, the council in uh, collaboration with the China Energy Fund Committee on um, recommendations on how to bring about fuel choice to the transportation sector. So I have a few copies here if you interested, um, happy to share it. Um, and I will go over some of them in the next uh, session. But this is an area where I see that there is a, a huge potential. When it comes to renewable energy, as well as uh, a reflection about the future of electric vehicles in China, because there's been a lot of talk about this today, I think that the key issue that we are forgetting is that the grid in China is very, very undeveloped. It's not a modern grid. It's a state monopoly. It is quite corrupt. It is not a system that is conducive to major reforms. Uh, we're not going to see a very soon, a, a, I'm not even saying a smart grid, but an OK grid. So we have a very long way to go before we can see in China the type of grid that can absorb and control and monitor and manage high percentage of renewable energy. And the same vein, we're not going to see a grid that can support mass deployment of electric vehicles. The problem with electric vehicles, ladies and gentlemen, is not the car is not the battery, is not any of this, is the grid. The grid cannot absorb large numbers of electric vehicles today. And until we have a different grid, we will, electric vehicles will be a niche market for rich Chinese or Americans that sort of, or diehard environmentalists or people that want to uh, send a social message. But the problem is, if I bring to the, this building three electric vehicles, or I don't know, I don't know this, but, but we cannot have a lot of uh, those vehicles unless we can manage the charging, unless we have a much smarter grid. So that's a problem, and uh, in China it's even more difficult to do because, as I said, it's a monopoly, it's not a competitive system, it's not a, a very innovative system. They would love to see it happen elsewhere and then copy it or import it or emulate it, choose the, the wording, but uh, they're not going to be the first to, to do it, in my view. Um, finally, there is a huge opportunity today that is also being missed. When I first started going to China, you know, China was only making its first steps in becoming a great power. And I always ask my Chinese friends, you know, what is, your, what is your mission for the world? What is your big idea? What, is, what do you stand for? And it was always, ah, uh, bah, you know, they didn't really know how to answer this question. Today they know. Today, in the past two years, since 2013, the Chinese have found their calling. Four words. One belt, one road. The Belt and Road Initiative that was announced in 2013 by Xi Jinping and is gradually being um, developed, the more meat on the bones, is China's uh, grand idea for the future of the world. It's China's manifest destiny. It is China's 
geopolitical blueprint. But more important, it is China's geoeconomic blueprint. What is the One Belt, One Road? To those of you who don't know, it is a plan to connect China to Europe. So to take all of this area spanning from China to the center of Europe and to connect it via a gigantic network of roads, highways, pipelines, high voltage power lines, um, uh, internet, broadband, uh, to build the infrastructure that enables the entire landmass to be connected. And the thinking is that the tide lifts all the boats. In other words, if Kazakhstan is developing economically, that will help China. Because China understands that it is slowing down. They do understand that, that they are slowing down. They're still growing nicely, but they're slowing down. And you have a lot of surpluses. What do you do when you have surpluses? Normally, you either go and conquer other countries um, or build colonies, which is certainly not in the DNA of the Chinese. Chinese never conquered anybody. They never had a colony anywhere. But So they need to export their excess capacity in infrastructure building, and they realize that that will help grow the developing economies in Central Asia, in the Middle East, in, in, in Southeast Asia, wherever. Uh, it's, by the way, it's not only the new Silk Road, it's also a maritime Silk Road. So there's a lot of uh, uh, LNG terminals, deep sea ports, coal terminals, you name it. All the infrastructure supports it. They also establish several financial institutions to, to fund all of these activities. The commitments that they have made uh, so far I think uh, maybe four times already uh, than the Marshall Plan in just a year and a half. And I think Hudson has an event a day or two, I think, this week about one of the components of the One Belt, One Road, which is the, uh, the Pakistan-China corridor. So this is a very, very important uh, initiative. And maybe if it is uh, accomplished uh, and executed, it could be the most ambitious human development project in human history. Now, you want to ask yourself, where is the United States in all this? So let me tell you where is the United States. First of all, I challenge you to find one administration official mentioning this initiative by words, even. I looked, I could not find. Maybe there is, but I could not find. As if somebody in the State Department told them, don't mention the word One Belt, One Road. If you don't mention it, it doesn't exist. But that's less important. The important thing is that um, we don't have uh, right now, in my view, an understanding that this is something we can play a role in. Now, then the question is, who is going to be drawing the contour lines of the world economy in the 21st century? Who, because... You know, um, infrastructure, energy infrastructure is what defines relationship between countries. In the 19th century and the early 20th century, railroads, railways, defined the relationship between countries. Think about the Berlin-Baghdad Railroad, which was one of the reasons that we ended up in World War I. Uh, think about the Fashoda incident in, 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 in Africa. Uh, so that was 19th century stuff, or 20, early 20th century. Today is about pipelines, it's about power lines, about ports, it's about energy infrastructure worldwide is going to define the relationship between countries. Will China and Russia have those two pipelines from eastern and western Siberia? If they do, that will set the stage for their relationship. If they don't, it's a different story. So China is dead set to uh, define its relationship with the world through energy infrastructure. The United States is not really in the game right now. It's not really active player in this. And I think that one of my recommendations is for the United States to define its view 
on OBOR, on the One Belt, One Road initiative, to have a, a certain view. Are we a player in this? Are we an opponent? Do we embrace some of it? What parts of this initiative are in our interest? What parts of this initiative are against our interest? Are we willing to play? Are we involved at all? This is something that uh, this administration has not yet given us an answer. Maybe they're too busy on other things, which is okay. But I think that if you want to engage with China today, uh, it's okay to talk about climate change and to, to indulge in all of these fantasies about this and that. But if you really want to have uh, a concrete area where there could be on the ground uh, implementation where American companies could be eligible to financing from the new emerging financial institutions, which, by the way, have much more money to lend than the World Bank, IMF, and Asia Investment Bank put together. <laughs> so, uh, and, and they cannot be part of this because um, we in the United States don't have an effective uh, and coherent policy with regards to the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, and if we decide not to play along, we decide that this is not something we're interested in, in, in being part of, that's okay. But then the onus is on us to come up with a, our own agenda for development. Because as an energy security expert, I tell you, the number one energy security challenge of the world today is no energy. It's energy poverty. And certainly in this part of the world where so much uh, energy poverty still exists. I mean, how can you explain it that 21st century, 2 billion people still are living in conditions that are uh, considered to be energy poverty? It's a shame. Shame on us. Shame on us that in the 21st century, 2 billion people are still energy poor. So we have to... Uh, if we decide not to be part of the Belt and Road Initiative, that's okay. But come up with your own alternative plan to show the world that you can uh, be part of this development goal. Or decide to join forces and work together to achieve uh, this goal. Uh, so I try to sort of give you some flavor of the choices we have and some of the... Um, inconsistencies that we have. Um, certainly, we need to do much more thinking about this, but I would just end in one final point. I hope that the rhetoric that we are hearing today from most of the presidential candidates with regards to China is um, a uh, election gimmick because um, the rhetoric is horrible. I mean, some of those candidates are really, really over the top. Now, we may uh, sort of wink, wink, nod, nod, you know, that's part of our shtick, and, but that's not how it's heard in China. And the Chinese hear all of this. They hear about the McDonald's. They hear about the, they hear about all. They read the papers, every single one of them. And we cannot let this type of rhetoric govern the relationship because the single most important task, I think, of the next president will be to keep those relationships on even keel because both countries need each other. Both countries share a lot of those problems. And if we um, uh, let the relations slide into all, all kind of unnecessary quarters, that will suck our ability to deal with so many other challenges that we see today, uh, starting in uh, Paris and another Paris, and uh, choose your, your challenge of the day, but, but uh, we cannot afford to uh, let those relationships uh, get out of hand. So um, with this, I will, uh, I will end it. I, uh, as I said before, um, if you're interested in those reports, uh, uh, there are much more detail here, and um, I hope to... Um, expand more on the oil situation in the next panel. I'm sitting in for Annie Corin, who could not be here today, but I'll, I'm not as pretty, but uh, 
uh, not as smart, but, but I, uh, I'll do my best. Thank you. Thank you for your talk. Um, I'm Margo from Brace from DOE. I'm also a SICE graduate. Um, so I had two comments, and I was hoping that I might be able to hear your response as well. Um, you mentioned, I think, early on that <clears throat> um, in terms of air pollution, that people are still living longer in China than they were, say, 20 years ago. So that's a big gain. But um, I'm sort of wondering about that, the quality of that life. And I think a lot of local governments in particular in China are very acutely aware of the health costs of a lot of this air pollution is, you know, even if you're setting aside the moral aspect, just the real economic cost of, of air pollution, what it means in terms of cancer treatments and um, all these other health, health costs. Um, and so I think that that should also be a factor in you know, what is the true cost of, of coal, of burning all this coal? And then my other comment was, um, I'm, I'm kind of surprised that you didn't mention energy efficiency when you're talking about areas of potential cooperation between China and the U.S. and certainly are, uh, that is an area of cooperation. I think the Chinese are very interested in energy efficiency, but do you see that as, um, you know, something that's, possibly um, not as controversial and extremely effective. Do you see that playing a larger role moving forward? Yeah. Okay. I think the reason I was raising all this mortality issue is just to balance the conversation. Yes, people are dying. That's no, no doubt about it. There is all these diseases. It's for real. But, you know, if you die at 50, maybe you'll never see cancer because you haven't reached the age of of cancer. So a lot of, as, as life expectancy increases, you deal with new problems. And all I'm asking is for more balanced conversation, not to see every day in the New York Times an article say about all these people that are, are dying prematurely, but you never hear the other side of the story of people that never in generation had such a Never in, in the history of China people had such a, a, a quality of life, prosperity. People are, uh, are uh, living in, I mean, talk to people. Uh, there are some people from China here in this room. It's never been as good. So life, I'm not saying that everything is perfect. I'm just saying that on the riding the wave of cheap energy, which is coal, essentially, China were able to move from a poor country to a, almost a developed country. Honestly, when I go today to China, I don't feel that I'm in a developing country. In many aspects, they leave us behind. <laughs> okay, so there's still a lot of room to grow in the more rural areas, yes. But you don't get a feeling that you, live, you are in a developing country anymore. So quality of life is good for most Chinese today. And most Chinese today are connected to the electricity supply, unlike India, where most uh, Indians are still struggling with it. Now, energy efficiency is very important. And it's part of the uh, strategic plan that I mentioned before. A lot of emphasis on energy efficiency. Lots of efficiency on um, buildings, new cities. China today is building uh, 200 new cities. Each one of them will have more than a million people. Think about what a wonderful area to cooperate when you're building now 200 new cities from scratch. You can implement all the gadgets and all the toys and all the new construction materials and all the energy efficiency in the world. It's much easier to do it when you start at ground level than
to retrofit or to change existing infrastructure. So absolutely, energy efficiency is huge. And I want to mention a very important thing that you mentioned, the word cooperation. David probably knows it. <laughs> the word cooperation, I always try to understand, what do they mean when they say, let's cooperate? Because you go to talk to any Chinese uh, um, think tank or uh, within five minutes or say, we'd love to cooperate with you. And I never understand what does it really mean. What does cooperation mean? So I can understand if we do a joint study maybe, that I can understand. But at a commercial level, what does it mean really to cooperate? Uh, and that's a more difficult thing, particularly when you have a uh, proprietary technology, when you have, uh, I think that the, the, the key difficulty in cooperation is in commercial cooperation. Let's suppose that you have a company and you developed some gadget or some technology that can make the life of millions of Chinese better. And now you have to make a decision. Do I go to China now? Do I invest money into setting up the Chinese infrastructure? And to how do I know who I can trust? How do I know who I can do business with? How do I know if yeah, Tesla? Look, you know how many Tesla-like cars today exist in China? Um, they look like Teslas, but they're not Teslas. They just look like Teslas. And they're certainly not as good as Tesla, but people buy them because, you know, they look like Teslas. Now think of a company like Tesla, which is a very strong and very, uh, have deep pockets. They're facing this problem. Think what, it, what does it mean for a small company to go today to China and deal with this. So cooperation is a nice word, but how do you do it? And how do you um, uh, balance the risks that are involved? Because if you're a company and you've got, uh, you lost control of your technology in China, you don't even have anybody to sue. Who do you go after? So I think we have to, the best way to create cooperation is to sort out the mechanism by which American companies or foreign companies can go to China and succeed and make, make money and not find China as their graveyard. And that has to do with cooperation, uh, various regulations, um, intellectual property protection. It's getting a little bit better, but it's still not enough to instill confidence Certainly not for small and medium companies. Then they will come over here, and then we should get ready for the next panel. Yeah, thank you. Um, <coughs> Floriano, a visiting scholar also at SIZE, Johns Hopkins. Um, I wonder if you could elaborate more on the, the state of the Chinese greed that you mentioned, uh, because it, it sounds... A kind of a contradiction to me, the fact that you're saying it is a poor grade when we're seeing straight state grid, which is their uh, national company, going abroad and, and winning all these bidding processes in different countries to manage uh, transmission lines in other countries. Apparently, we would think that they're efficient to win those uh, other than cost effective. So if you could elaborate a little bit more on that. Thank you. Well, there is a difference between uh, the all generation grid, which is what we have today in most countries, and <coughs> what we want the grid to be, what we call the smart grid, which is absolutely essential if you ever want to have an in, um, integration of renewables in a meaningful way. Because, in, because the intermittency, and one of the recommendations, by the way, that we have in the report has to do with demand response. You know, America is much stronger than China in demand response programs. And there's a lot of experience here, a lot of pilots. In China, almost nothing. So that's an area where we can uh, really uh, work together with the Chinese on, on uh, introducing our experience with regards to demand response. 
Um, so the problem is not with the current, the current generation grid. How do you get to the next level of a smarter grid? That's, I think, something that state grid is not up to speed. And, um, and this is only something that involves a lot of technology, not only hardware, by the way. I would say that a much more challenging uh, layer is the software, the ability to manage all of those elements of the grid and control the renewables and different feeds and to uh, do it in an efficient way. Uh, that's a very, very big project. It's a, it's a, it's a generational project. It's maybe the most important uh, challenge today in the field of energy, how to take the grid from where it is today and upgrade it when there's so much infrastructure already in, in place and so many patches upon patches upon patches. It's a very big challenge. But I think this is where innovation plays a major role, and this would be one of my top priorities when it comes to cooperation with, with the Chinese, because that will open the door to so much more. It will open the door, for example, to electric vehicles. It will open the door to uh, more renewables. It will, open, it will open the door to so many things. Uh, but it's, it's a real bottleneck at the moment. I've got one more question, which is going to be down here, and then we'll, I, we'll have to uh, get ready for the next panel. Hi, I'm Juliet. Um, I'm a new intern here. So um, I kind of, uh, when you first said that, you know, we don't really want to put too much pressure on China to move away from coal energy, you know, I was kind of taken aback. But after thinking about it, I can see your reasoning. But my question is, at what point do we stop trying to, I guess, appease them and start moving them out of their comfort zone and start trying to introduce better way? I know you mentioned that you wanted to use, you know, talk about using better talk about uh, better ways to use coal, but what if we could you know, try to introduce alternatives earlier to coal in a way that could keep their economy going as opposed to just letting them run their course with coal energy? Well, that would be nice, but it's not the real world. Okay? In the real world, China uh, doesn't have the ability to replace coal in an economic way, of course, if you subsidize, then all bets are off. But in an economic way, uh, not to mention the fact there's so many vested interests. I mean, the coal industry in China is, is the most powerful lobby uh, in, in, the, in the country. Um, but I think there's so much, you know, it's sort of like the discussion about nuclear power. You know, if your discussion about nuclear power is nuclear yes versus no, nuclear no, and you leave the nuclear how, then you missed, you missed the opportunity here. The question is not yes or no. The question is how. And I must tell you, I'm not sure that we are now in a position to teach the Chinese anymore how to build coal-fired plants. I think that uh, to a large extent, their, their supercritical plants are, are even better than, more efficient than ours. And China has made a huge progress. I mean... Uh, if you think about this, in 10 years, for example, they were able to double the amount of coal that is being washed, in a, um, which, which is, a, if you understand how the mechanism of, of coal works, it's a pretty big achievement in a market like this. So they're making very good progress when it comes to the utilization of coal. Uh, can it be better? Yes. Can it be faster? Yes. Could we help? Probably. Um, but when you have a position that no coal and coal is public enemy number one and we're going to behave as if it doesn't exist, then you run into a problem because you're not engaging, engaging with them on an energy source that they pretty much their fallback solution. And if you, in a spirit of frankness, our utilization of our energy is not that great. You know, if you look at a picture of the United States from a satellite at night, you see how much gas we're burning in North Dakota, flaring it just like this. It looks like Chicago. Uh, let's look at our own utilization of our own energy. And by the way, methane is um, also a greenhouse gas. 
quite potent. And uh, so, you know, we, 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 we are not there to impose. We're not get there to get them out of their comfort zone. And I will leave you with uh, my initial premise. It is in our interest to grow together with China because we are, we and the Chinese are the growth engines of the world economy today. If we don't grow, everything stops. When everything stops, there is collapse. Okay? So in my view, everything that contributes to growth, sustainable growth preferably, this is where we need to focus on. Unless the other, until the other countries like India and others can also contribute some of their fair share in global growth. But we're not there now. Thank you. Well, thank you very much.